Join us in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, Hayden is going to continue our series in uh, that book uh, this morning. There we go. All right. Yes, so we are nearing the end of the book of Nehemiah. This morning we'll be in chapters 8 through 10, and where we're at is they have rebuilt the temple. It's been rebuilt. The city and the city walls is rebuilt. They are in some sense back, but there is something still missing. And over these three chapters, what we see is God's people go through an incredible transformation. So I'm going to read just some selections from each of these three chapters. This will just give us a snapshot of the whole. So first, Nehemiah chapter 8, just verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Chapter 9, first three verses. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us this morning? Would you be with me in the words of my mouth? Would you open our eyes to see your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of my favorite things to do is to watch movies. <clears throat> I love cinematography. I love long shots. I love really good dialogue. And I love watching movies with friends. But one time, we sat down with some friends to watch a movie, friends we thought we knew well, and something very disturbing happened. We started the movie, the opening scene comes on the screen, and then subtitles. They had the subtitles turned on. And I, I thought that was an oversight, but it became very clear that they were, they were going to leave the subtitles on for the whole movie. And so I didn't watch the movie, I read the movie, and... Uh, I don't know where you fall on the subtitles, no subtitles debate, but at this point in my life, this felt very wrong. 
how, how can you disgrace the artistic medium of film with the acting and the wardrobes and the music and the lighting with block text running across the screen? Now, I've actually since changed my views on subtitles, uh, and part of that was realizing that this whole conversation was bigger than I knew. You may have seen the movie Parasite. When it won the Golden Globe for the best foreign language film, it was the first Korean film to, to win that Golden Globe. And the director, a Korean man, when he accepted that Golden Globe, he said in his speech in Korean, once you overcome the one inch tall barrier of subtitles, you'll be introduced to so many more amazing films. And then just last week, I read an article about this rise of using subtitles. And in it, the, the author of the article was interviewing someone in the film industry, and he was shocked to find out that this person in the film industry was pro-subtitles. And this man that he interviewed said that following the story is the most important thing. And if you're getting knocked out of the story because you can't follow the dialogue, then by all means, turn on the subtitles. So subtitles are about widening our perspective. They're about not getting lost. They are about clarity. And in this life, <clears throat> in following Jesus, it's really easy to get knocked out of the story, to get distracted, to get disoriented. And God's people at this point, they'd been in some ways knocked out of the story. Physically, they'd been exiled. They had forgotten what it meant to be God's people. But what these chapters show us is they got clarity. And that clarity led to their transformation. This is a big chunk of scripture, three chapters, so we'll summarize it in the first point, what happened, and then look at how did it happen, and then how can it happen again. So what happened, how did it happen, and how can it happen again? So first, what happened? This point will be brief. We could sum up chapters 8 through 10 with a single word, transformation. And we are drawn to stories of transformation. If you just turn on any streaming service, there's dozens of, of options for shows that kind of get at this idea of transformation. Extreme makeover, extreme home makeover, what not to wear, property brothers, fixer upper. These stories of transformation, they give us hope that something ruined can become beautiful, that things don't have to stay the same, but they also show us that it's not easy. There is work that has to be done, sometimes painful work. Walls need to be broken down. Weeds need to be pulled up. Wallpaper needs to be stripped. Some things need to be broken. And here in these chapters, God's people have something of a divine demo day. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he put it like this. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts 
abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And over the course of about seven days in these chapters, we see the people go through a dramatic renovation. They go from returned exiles, living under foreign rule, scattered, displaced, unsure of who they are, to a united people, starving for God's law and longing to obey his commands. And so that's what happened, transformation. Now, how did it happen? Chapters 8 through 10, they show us the God-given blueprint for transformation. Exposure, examination, and expression. Exposure to the living and active word of God. Examination of the heart in response to that word. And then expression of faith and obedience, all in community. And that's crucial. The word all or all the people is everywhere throughout these chapters this was a communal affair, and they were transformed as a people. So we see this progression play out. Scripture led to confession, confession led to obedience, and it all started with clarity. First, they got clarity about the word. We see this in chapter 8. This isn't the first time that Ezra has read the law, but this time is different. He has flipped on the subtitles, and no one is missing a single word. They stand for hours and hear not only the word read, but explained. Ezra pauses throughout his reading and explains. And then in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 8, it says, The Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So Ezra is reading, the priests are moving throughout the crowd, helping the people understand, giving clarity. And this went on for hours. It says about a quarter of the day, and some say that they read the entire law. So Ezra reads Genesis about the curse and the faith of Abraham. He reads Exodus about their deliverance through the Red Sea. He reads Leviticus. They hear about the Day of Atonement. He reads Numbers. They're wanderings in the wilderness and he reads Deuteronomy the the sermon on the edge of the promised land and as they got clarity about the word their perspective widened they were exposed to portions of scripture they hadn't heard things about God that they didn't know the diamond of God's character was being turned and new aspects were shining and this clarity about the word led to second clarity about their sin. You see this in chapter 9. Notice that these three verses we read from chapter 9, the focus has shifted to confession, but the foundation is still scripture. The word has become so clear and so sharp that it pricks their hearts in very specific ways. And when you go in for a medical procedure, you want your surgeon's scalpel to be very sharp 
and the diagnosis to be very clear. A dull scalpel is ineffective. It can't cut out the bad stuff. And the law has come into such sharp focus that it pierces to the most intimate places of their hearts. Notice their confession. It's not just a vague, we've sinned. But they say, you led us through the Red Sea and we stiffened our necks. We made a golden calf. We longed for Egypt. They don't just say we've sinned, but you gave us kingdoms and a land and we cast your law behind our backs and we killed your prophets. It's specific confession. Clarity on the law has led them to confess their specific lawlessness. Their eyes had been opened to the gap that existed between their hearts and God's holiness and this clarity about their sin led to third clarity about obedience. We see this in chapter 10. This snowball of word and confession has grown into a new desire for obedience. And again, it's not a vague obey, but a very specific obedience concerning the things of the law. Things like marriage. Chapter 10, verse 30 says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take our daughters for our sons. Now remember, this wasn't about race. This was about religion. It was about worship. They had failed to keep themselves pure from the idolatry of the nations, and now they long to make that right. Things like Sabbath, chapter 10, verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Sabbath was to be holy, set apart to remember God's holiness, who he was, and their exposure to God's holiness through the reading of Scripture has reinvigorated their desire to keep the Sabbath. Obedience to things like temple. Chapter 10, verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. They wanted to play a part now. They committed to giving funds to the temple, to bringing the showbread, to giving burnt offerings, even bringing the wood to burn for the sacrifices. They knew that if they were to be in communion with this holy God that they have heard about, that they needed the sacrificial system to deal with their sin. They have obedience about things like these practices, like the Feast of Booths. When Ezra reads through the law, they hear about this celebration, the Feast of Booths, that the, the Hebrew people would, they would camp out in the wilderness as a way to remember their forefathers' wanderings and the exodus. And they say, we've never done this. We want to obey and practice this feast. We want to be a people marked by these practices. So maybe you've had a season like this. Maybe it was when you were younger in your faith and you were excited to obey God. And then somewhere along the way, we get knocked out of the story. We lose perspective and obedience becomes like a burden. But obedience is not something, not just something that we do, but it does something to us. It forms us. 
one commentator talking about this feast of booths. He said, by celebrating this feast, a feast that remembers the exodus and wilderness, they were being formed into a people who are journeying toward dwelling with God in the land. So the purpose of the law is to form us into a certain kind of people. And they, in these chapters, had caught a vision of being part of that story, of being transformed into a certain kind of people through obedience. Now, isn't that what we want? Transformation, change. Even if you don't consider yourself a follower of, of Jesus, we all have things, big things in our lives and the lives of those we love that we want to change. So how can it happen again? How can we experience transformation? Well, every person is made in the image of God and sin has distorted that image, and so there's a sense of something isn't right. We're not all that we could or should be, and so there's this pull in each one of us to change. And the solution of our modern culture says that transformation starts within. Find the truth within yourself and then reorder your external world around that. But the biblical blueprint is counter cultural. It is exposure to an external truth, examination, and expression. When your eyes are open to the external word, it leads to true repentance, a reordering of our lives in light of the external truth, and it always results in practical obedience. Now, there is a danger here. We're not saying, I'm not saying that it's just read your Bible Confess your sin, you terrible sinner, and get to work. Do better. No, we have to get clear on what really led to their transformation, and it was grace. Every time in their prayer of confession, their sin was always followed by but, or nevertheless. Chapter 9, verse 17, But you are a God ready to forgive Gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Chapter 9, verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them. So their transformation was not because of the act of their hearing and confessing and obeying, but because of the object of their hearing and confessing and obeying, the grace and goodness of God. And the same is true for us, but we have an even clearer revelation of the goodness of God. Paul writes in Titus in the New Testament, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Word appeared. The Word became flesh. The script himself in block letters across the screen. It does not get any clearer than the incarnation of Jesus. The Apostle John said in his letter, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, 
the goodness of God in flesh and blood. So if you want to follow the story, you turn the subtitles on. That's what Ezra did. But if you want to be certain that you know what the story is about, you sit down with the director. In his incarnation, Jesus, the word and director, has stepped into the story. And he has spoken with authority as the author himself, how he came to fulfill the whole law. And he kept telling his own story, how he would suffer and die I would raise again on the third day. And it's that resurrection power that is the key to transformation. If you are in Christ, the same power that raised him from the dead has raised you from death to life. There is no change that can't happen. Now let's apply this. If this is the way to transformation, what does it look like for us? Well, first, we need to be exposed to the transforming power of Jesus. Practically, we expose ourselves to Scripture because in the Word, we come face-to-face with the Word himself, Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus flipped the subtitles on for his disciples and showed them how everything in the law, the prophets, the writings, the whole Testament was about him. And so for us, we do this by sitting under the preached word, but also by committing to be a community of people who are exposing ourselves to the scriptures in small groups and in Bible studies. Second, we examine our hearts, not out of penance, but because Jesus has renewed our hearts, and now we willingly go to the great physician for surgery, for him to cut away what is not in his image. And practically, we need to get really specific about confession. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, says that there's something crucial in our fight against sin that we often overlook, and it's what he calls our temperament. Our unique story, our personalities, the unique ways that we are broken— One of our old pastors used this example. He said, say you want to stop gossiping. That's good. And you may even do some things like memorize a verse or two or have a friend ask you about how things are going. But at some level, we're just dealing with the surface behavior. But at some point, we have to ask, what about my unique story The ways I've sinned and been sinned against make slandering others so appealing. And the answer to that question is the disease that Jesus needs to deal with. And so take time to reflect on your own story, and even better, do this in community. Third, we express our faith through obedience. That Titus 3 passage goes on to say, Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Not to earn a place in the story, but because the director has come and said that you already have a leading role. It's a role of delighting in the law of God. Our role is to love God and love neighbor. The whole law summed up. And so practically, what does obedience look like? For you, not in general, but specifically as a part of this 
Walnut Creek community and specifically in light of the needs of the neighbors that God has placed around you. And I challenge you this week, as you read the Bible, do your background study, do word studies, anything you, you want, but do whatever you read and see if it doesn't lead to blessing or burden. So chapters 8 through 10 come to close with a happy ending, right? Transformation? Well, not exactly. We'll see in the end that it doesn't take long for their newfound religious determination to crumble. And it's really the same for us. We can grit our teeth and take a stand to change, but we know how that ends. Guilt, shame, old patterns creep in, disappointment. Or we can fix our eyes on the subtitles, on the word, on the author of our faith, the divine director, and be transformed as we go deeper into him, being exposed to his resurrection power, letting him renew our hearts, and as we go further out, following his call in obedience to love our neighbor, that we might be a transformed church. Let's pray. Father, in your goodness, would you expose us to your son, Jesus, to his resurrection power, and would that power renew our hearts, rearranging our loves and our desires, and would these encounters with Jesus transform not only us, but those around us, as we obey your call to love our neighbor. We need your grace to do this. We ask for it in the transforming power of Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's respond to what we've heard with an affirmation of faith and, and what we do in, in many ways as we enact what we've heard this morning. We, we bring ourselves to the clarity of what God has said to us, but not just as abstract ideas, but how God draws us into the story, how he makes us a part of what we say, what we speak in our affirmation of faith. So let's affirm our faith together using the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.